Most of you, I'm sure, know that I uh, spent a lot of years at Peninsula Bible Church in uh, Palo Alto, California. And uh, they have a very casual attitude toward buildings there, which uh, I hope we have as well. When I first came in 1960, they told me that they didn't have any office space. I could either choose to work out of my home or they would uh, provide some place for me to study there in the building. And they gave me a key and told me to find a spot somewhere out in the Sunday school. So I started looking around in storage areas and finally found an old office that had been abandoned at the back part of the building and uh, swept it out, put in some bookcases, rounded up a desk and uh, set up shop. And uh, I thought it was quite nice until Carolyn saw it and she said it looked like the black hole of Calcutta. So she went to work and she made curtains for it and we ended up paneling it and it turned out to be a thing of beauty. It was one of the nicest office I, offices I've ever had. Everything was coordinated and it was quite nice. Until one day when I came to work and walked in my door and looked up at the ceiling and I saw this, uh, this huge hole in the ceiling about this big around and plaster and insulation all over my desk and all over the floor and I realized that someone had fallen through the ceiling. We had, had acoustical tile just like this. And uh, I knew immediately who had done it because there was a young man in our high school department who was always climbing up in the attic and rummaging around up there and apparently he'd fallen between the rafters and he came right through the ceiling right onto my desk and then took off. I could see the tracks that he left behind. <laughs> I wanted to, uh, first I wanted to wring his neck, and then I thought, well, here's a chance to uh, befriend this, this youngster because he was, uh, he'd had a tough life, and at this point in his life he didn't know the Lord, and I thought this is a chance to, to uh, get to know him and help him in some way, and so I tried to find him. But uh, he didn't turn up anymore at the youth group. As a matter of fact, every time he saw me, he ran. I saw him drive into the parking lot one time in his four-wheel drive pickup, and I I went to talk to him and he opened the door on the other side, the passenger side, and ran through the parking lot over the fence and, and uh, I couldn't, couldn't catch him. Now guilt, you know, will do that to you. Uh, one of the Proverbs, Proverbs 28.1, says the righteous are bold as a lion, but uh, the wicked flee when no one pursues. And we, we have a, a, a proverb in our, own, uh, in our own culture that uh, the that a bad conscience makes cowards out of all of us. We know what it's like to feel the effects of a bad conscience. It makes us fearful, it makes us anxious, it can depress us. David says in one of his psalms, because he wouldn't face his sin and put it away, that the hand of God pressed down upon him. He felt depressed because of his sin. And then uh, ultimately, guilt will make us sick and it can kill us. Now, there are organic reasons, of course, for, uh, for sickness, but there are also non-organic reasons for getting sick. And as Paul puts it to the church in Corinth, there are even some who had died because of their guilt. So it's a very serious thing, and it's therefore something we ought to take seriously. Guilt is no laughing matter. We need to understand how to deal with it. Now let's turn to the third chapter of Acts where Peter confronts the uh, nation of Israel with their guilt, their responsibility, and the crucifixion of our Lord, and then tells them how to alleviate that guilt. 
You, uh, you know the story, Brian taught the first ten verses of chapter three last week. Peter and John were on their way up to the temple to uh, participate in the afternoon sacrifices. They were, after all, Jews. They still thought of themselves as Jews, part of the uh, historic line of promise that went all the way back to Abraham. And so they continued to uh, worship in the temple, and as they made their way up to the three o'clock service at the temple, they came to the beautiful gate, and as you know, they saw the lame man who had lain there for, uh, for some time. He was lame from birth. And they looked at uh, this pitiful, wretched man with his shrunken legs and heard him call for alms. And uh, Peter turned his pockets out and said, Well, I don't, uh, I don't have any money, but what I have I'll give you, and, and what I'm going to give you is far more worthwhile than anything else I could give. I'll give you back your dignity, your wholeness, your manhood. And he said to the man, in the name of Jesus, the Messiah of Nazareth, rise and walk. And you know the story. The man looked down at his, his legs and he saw his thighs and calves fill out. And, and they were Eric Hyden legs, <laughs> linebacker legs. <clears throat> and he leaped to his feet. And I think if it were I, I would take a couple of tentative steps, but not this fellow. He jumped to his feet and began to dance and uh, leap and cavort through the temple area. And uh, what happened there was what would happen here if something happened like that in this, uh, in this service. Someone jumped to their feet and began to shout and leap about the room. It would disrupt the service. And apparently that's what happened. The people flooded out of the temple area over to, the, to Solomon's porch and gathered around Peter and, and John and the other apostles and asked for an explanation. Let's begin reading with verse 11 of chapter 3. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico or porch of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? In other words, don't look at us. We didn't do this. It's not, this healing is not the result of some power that, that's inherent in us. It's not because we're religious men. We're pious men or, or we're godly. There's another explanation. Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, has done this. It's by his authority, it's in his name, that this healing took place. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the Prince of Life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of all. And there are two things to note. One is the emphasis which Peter makes, and secondly, there are a series of contrasts which he gives. The emphasis he makes is, the, is this. You Jews, he says, should not be surprised that this sort of thing could occur. Uh, you're, you're accustomed to the fact that God from time to time uh, intervenes in history. You know this from your own history. Israel walked through the Jordan on dry land, through the Red Sea. God provided manna from heaven. He was always breaking in on human events and revealing himself in miraculous ways. 
And uh, therefore, you Jews, of all people, ought not to be surprised that God would uh, intervene thus in, in human history. The second thing that he does is set up a series of, of contrasts. You murdered, he says, the prince of life. The word that's translated prince could, could also mean the author or the source, the spring of life. You put life to death. In other words, shows the enormity of, of the act of, of crucifying our Lord, the enormity of their guilt in, in so acting. You murdered the prince of life, and you set free a murderer. What irony. They turned loose a man who had taken life, and they killed a man who gave life. It's like drowning someone who swims out to save you. And then secondly, he contrasts the, their actions with God's reactions. You put him to death, but God raised him from the dead. And he reminds them again of this hard fact, this brute fact of his resurrection. Historically verifiable. We're witnesses. We saw it. Peter says, we know it's true. That's uh, why their message had some impact. There was no ambiguity about their witness. It wasn't, they didn't say, well, we think he was alive, I and mean, he looked like he was alive. And they could say with, with a great deal of certainty, he's living. God overturned the sentence of death that you imposed. He's alive today, and, and the point of verse 16 is that this living Lord is the one who has acted through us to bring this man back to life. They knew from the Old Testament that one of the marks of Messiah is that he would heal the sick and raise the dead and cause the lame to leap. Isaiah said, the lame shall leap like a heart, like a deer. And Peter's point is that he's still at work among us. Though so we call this book of the, the Acts of the Apostles. This is these are really the acts of the Lord Jesus through the apostles. Now, the third thing I want you to notice about Peter's uh, sermon is that he imposes a great deal of guilt upon these people. He pulls no punches. He says, you killed the Prince of Life. You're responsible. And now you're not supposed to do that. We're being told a hundred times or more that you should not impose guilt upon people. Don't lay your trip on others, they say. We ought not to do that. People are, are already guilt-ridden. We ought, therefore, to alleviate their guilt. But apparently Peter had not read, read the, uh, the contemporary thinking on, on psychology. He, he didn't understand, apparently, because he's imposing a great deal of responsibility and guilt upon these people. You did it, he said. Now, now guilt is nothing more than the sensation that we have when we violate our, our conscience. When, when we do something that we know is wrong, uh, a, a, a little warning goes off somewhere in the back of our mind. It's like the red light on my Honda that uh, registers uh, oil pressure. Uh, my Honda has been around a few times, and uh, it tends to leak oil and use oil, and if I don't... Uh, I don't check the oil. Every time I get gasoline, I find that that little red light on the dash goes on and it says oil. That's a, that's a pregnant expression. What, what it really means is you are violating a law of physics. And uh, you're about to run out of oil, and if you do, friction will build up and your engine will self-destruct. You better, you better stop what you're doing and set things right. All of that in that one little red light, oil. Now, the problem with my ancient uh, Honda is that there's a short 
in the electrical system. And uh, occasionally, the red light comes on when there is plenty of oil in the crankcase. And at other times, it doesn't come on when there is no oil in the crankcase. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's very much like our conscience. It's, it's not very reliable. That's the problem with the human conscience. It's not at all reliable. Ever since man fell, his conscience has been playing tricks on him. It signals a warning when there's nothing wrong, and it warns him when, uh, sometimes when things are wrong, and sometimes it doesn't warn him at all when things are terribly wrong. John Bunyan, in his Holy War, tells the story of the conquest of man's soul, which is the, the city that was conquered by uh, Prince Apollyon. It's the story of the fall of man. Man's soul represents man. The city is um, besieged and finally overthrown by Apollyon, the devil. And uh, the one most uh, deeply affected by this conquest is the chief citizen of the city, Mr. Conscience, whose job it is to be the town crier. When Apollyon captures man's soul, the town crier goes insane. And uh, when there is, there is real danger to the city, man's uh, conscience wraps himself in moody silence. He, he doesn't say anything. But in the middle of the night, when everybody else is uh, asleep, he, he cries out crazily in the middle of the night all sorts of warnings when there's nothing to be afraid of. And that's what's happened. Our conscience is not a very reliable instrument. There, there are times that you wake up in the morning and for no particular reason you feel terribly guilty and you can't put your finger on anything that you've done. And yet you, there's a, a sort of free-floating anxiety that overwhelms you, and you, you can't put your finger on it, but you feel guilty. At other times, you do things that you know you ought to feel guilty about, and you don't. Uh, the, our conscience is a very unreliable sort of instrument, has been ever, ever since we fell. The other problem is the standard on which our conscience operates is not very reliable either. We, we were told certain things when we were children that, that were wrong, and they're really not, but ever since then we feel guilty when we do it. There are sects, you know, of Christians who do not wear zippers in their trousers or in their coats because they believe that's uh, worldliness. Really. Uh, all sorts of uh, mechanical devices, motorized devices are skewed because they they feel that that's, that's a part of the world. So they drive horses and buggies, and they just have buttons in their coats and trousers. And they feel terribly guilty if, if they ride in a car. And there's nothing wrong with zippers. Uh, if one sticks and, uh, you know, you, you say some dirty words, there might be something wrong with that, but there's nothing wrong with zippers per se. But a lot of people think that, that zippers are wrong. And whenever they... They wear a pair of breeches with, with a zipper, they feel guilty. That's what I mean. It, it, conscience is not reliable. The standard by which we, we judge uh, what, right and wrong is not reliable. So we're in big trouble. We need a guide. Now, Peter's not against imposing guilt upon these people because they were truly guilty, but, but now he takes steps to alleviate their guilt. Let's read on. Beginning with verse 17. And now, brethren... I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouths of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, 
whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel, Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Peter says some interesting things here. I think verse 17 ought to, certainly ought to arrest our attention. He says, you acted in ignorance. Now, you stop and think of the events that surround the crucifixion. The street people, when they cried out, crucify, acted in ignorance. Caiaphas, Herod, Pilate, acted in ignorance. Well, apparently they did. Peter said so. And our Lord from the cross said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Peter states what I think is a very important principle here. It's that people do not recognize their guilt until they are told that they are guilty. I think there's a widespread misconception among Christians that non-Christians are basically guilty about this sort of respect they accord to our Lord. They, they are not, generally. Some may be. But we can't assume that they all are. Nor can we assume that they're guilty over their lifestyles. Some may be, to some extent. But it's my experience, and also I think it's corroborated again and again in Scripture, that, that people do not always feel guilty about things which they should feel guilty about. They need to be told. That's why Peter states the facts of the crucifixion and reminds them that they were responsible for what they did. Turn back to uh, the 16th chapter of John. This is a familiar passage, but one which uh, I think we may misunderstand. Jesus um, speaks these words. He's in the upper room. These are his last words to the disciples. He says in verse 8, When he, that is the helper, or the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. He will convict, and the word means to convince the heart of those who hear. He will call on the carpet the world concerning sin. What sin? Well, the sin of, uh, of not believing in Christ. That's really the only sin of which people in the world are guilty before God. Christ died for every other sin. The, the problem is their unbelief. And the Lord says the Spirit will convict the world concerning the sin of unbelief about Christ. And secondly, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. Jesus was an objective standard of righteousness. They could look at his life and see what it meant to be, meant to be right. Now he was going to the Father, and he says the Spirit will now will take over that ministry of convincing people that there is a standard of righteousness which we all fail to maintain. And thirdly, of the certainty of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. If he did not get away scot-free, how can, how can any of us hope to escape? So these are three moral categories uh, 
that men tend to dismiss, but which the, the Holy Spirit convicts us of, sin and righteousness and judgment. The gravity of sin, the objectivity of righteousness, and the certainty of judgment. Now, we're accustomed to thinking that what happens is that the Holy Spirit merely speaks to people out there in the world about these matters, but that's not at all what Jesus is saying. He prefaces his comments in verse 7 by saying, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you, and he will convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. In other words, he will convince the world through you of their sin and righteousness and judgment. You see what he's saying? He assumes a proclamation of the gospel. As you read on through the rest of the book of Acts, for example, you'll see that that the messages which the apostles deliver time and time again follow these themes, sin, righteousness, and judgment. There has to be a proclamation of truth because the conscience tends to be unreliable because the standard that people have by which they judge their sin is not always reliable. They need to hear about the truth. They need to have the facts proclaimed. And it's then that people know of, of their guilt. And their guilt, as Peter puts it, is enormous and so is ours. We put the Lord to that just as much as they. As I've said a couple of times, it's just a good thing that the Lord came 2,000 years ago in Palestine rather than in 1982 in, in Boise because we would have done the same thing. We're all guilty. We all would have put him to death. Our guilt is enormous. But we need to know. And we need to hear it. And we need to proclaim it to those on the outside. And, and we, as Christians, also need a standard just because we have become Christians. does not mean that our conscience is immediately set right. It is not. Nor are we automatically given a standard. We, we know the standard through the Word. That's how we learn to correct our conscience and guide our life. We should not say to people, just follow the dictates of your conscience, because our conscience is, is very unreliable. We follow the dictates of Scripture. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy, all scripture is inspired of, of God, uh, literally breathed out, expired by God. We can't use that word because uh, librarians and undertakers have ruined it for us, but literally that's, that's the word. The scriptures are expired, breathed out by God. And that, that means they have authority and power and uh, profitable, therefore, as Paul puts it, for instruction. And then he tells us precisely what, what the scriptures do. They reprove us. When we get out of line, they tell us uh, where we've gone astray. And they correct us. They tell us how to get ourselves out of the mess that we've gotten ourselves into. And they instruct us in righteousness. They begin to teach us about God's righteous standard and how to, how to measure up to that, that standard. Don't follow your conscience. Follow scripture. And as you follow Scripture, you'll discover that God will begin to conform your conscience to Scripture. He'll heal your conscience. You will begin to love righteousness and hate wickedness as the, as the Spirit of God begins to change your way of thinking about, about right and wrong. Don't worry if you don't feel guilty about things that Scripture, uh, scripture forbids because our conscience is unreliable. Don't worry about a conscience that speaks to you about things that, that are not sin because our conscience cannot be relied upon. Act according to Scripture. And in time, the Lord will heal your conscience. Now, that's the first thing that Peter does. 
He recognizes their ignorance, and he establishes a standard. He teaches them what they have actually done. He goes back to the hard facts of the gospel. The second thing he does in verse 19 is to issue a command. Peter's very direct in his counseling. Repent, therefore, in return. Repent in return. Now, as you know, repentance is simply changing your mind about something. It has nothing to do with remorse. We don't have to cry tears. We don't have to feel any way. It's a mental process. The, the Greek term metanoia simply means to change your mind. So when you're instructed from the Word about something you're doing that's contrary to the will of God, what we need to do is change our mind. Decide that the way we're going is wrong and go in the other direction. Repent, he says, and return. Now, if you're out in the woods here hiking and you get lost, you know that's how you get back. If you're going east when you ought to be going west, you have to change your mind. You look at your map, you look at your compass, you say, I'm lost. I have to go back where I got off of the track. I have to return to the place where I, where I went astray. And that's what we have to do. We repent and return. That's a very simple process. And we do because our wills have been set free by Christ, have the power to change our mind and go back to where things went, uh, where, we, where we got uh, off the, the way and get started on the, right, on the right track. The process is just that simple. That's all. We read Scripture. We find we violated God's will. We feel guilty about it, or we may not feel guilty about it. The thing to do is to change our mind and do what God wants us to do. As you know, Carolyn, my wife, is an antique freak. We have, we have furniture that dates back to the Hittite Empire. <laughs> Most impractical stuff you ever saw. You can't even sit on it. It squeaks and wobbles. And if you lean over backwards, you'll break your neck, or Carolyn will, before you fall out. Uh, we, I have one chair. We have one chair that has a crack in the seat. It's about that wide. And every time, every time, I sit down in that chair. It says, gotcha. <laughs> now, suppose you came over to my house for dinner some night, and uh, we gathered around the table, and you happened to sit in that chair, and you felt this sudden pain in your seat, <laughs> and you let out a shriek. And I, I, I wanted to help you. And I got up out of my chair, and I, and I came over, and I said, what, what can I do to help? And you say, it's all your fault. If you'd fix this chair, then I, it wouldn't have the crack. Or it's your fault because you put me in the chair in the first place. Why didn't you sit in the chair? <laughs> now, that, that might be one way to handle the problem, but that wouldn't relieve the pain. You'd still be hurting. Or I might... Uh, I might give you an aspirin, maybe that would help, or something stronger, but uh, the pain would, would come back. Or I might say to you, well, really, pain is just illusory, you know, and if you just uh, concentrate on truth or something else, then the pain will go away. Like the faith healer from Deal who said, although pain is not real, when I sit on a pin and it punctures my skin, I just like what I fancy I feel. <laughs> pain is still there. Or I might say, look, you know, the whole thing can be explained really on behaviorist grounds. You, you know, you have a lot of nerve endings down there. 
and really it's just electrical impulses and the whole thing can be disregarded because it's it's all chemical and electrical now none of those problems would be none of those solutions would be very satisfactory the only way to solve the problem is to get up out of the chair and go sit someplace else and try to avoid that chair in the future now sin is like that sin will get you it'll get me and when we sin and we feel guilty we feel the pain what we need to do is stop sinning it's just that simple just stop sinning and we'll feel a whole lot better about ourselves and with all of the complicated explanations for guilt and the way to assuage our guilt we sometimes overlook the simplest possible explanation guilt can be false it can be based on an improper standard but it can be the real thing because we have we have violated God's will and when we do a little red light goes off and we need to do something about it and when we do we will feel oh so much better in fact Peter says two things happen in verse 19 our sins are wiped away in times of refreshing come the word for refreshment here means a, means a respite or relief you want to know how to spell relief r-e-p-e-n-t-a-n-c-e -E -E. repent and return get up off the chair stop sinning and here's blessed relief the pain goes away i remember dr henry brandt telling us one time about a woman who came to see him and and uh, she was anxiety ridden and her she had no peace of mind and Dr. Brandt chatted with her for a while, and then he said, well, I, I think I know what the problem is. And she said, oh, Dr. Brandt, that's great. Tell me what it is. He said, I've had no peace for years. And Dr. Brandt said, well, you're wicked. <laughs> and her eyes got as big as saucers, and she said, what do you mean I'm wicked? And he says, well, uh, Isaiah says, there is no peace, says my God, to the wicked. And you don't have any peace. Apparently, therefore, you're wicked. Now, what we need to do is find out where, where in your wickedness lies. Where are you sinning? And they started thinking through various areas of her life, and they didn't have to work at it very long because the Spirit of God always puts his finger specifically, very directly, on sin. These free-floating feelings of guilt do not come from God. They come from the enemy. When the Spirit of God speaks to us, he puts his finger right on it. And it turns out that this dear woman had been molested by her father when she was a child, and she had hated him all of her life. And she felt justified because of this terrible thing that, that he had done. And when Dr. Brandt pointed out to her the standard that she needed to forgive, she saw that it was sin, and she confessed it, and she gained relief. That doesn't always come immediately. Sometimes we have to struggle with our conscience. Sometimes it takes time. We have to keep reminding ourselves that what God says is true, but it will come. Refreshing will come. And the blessing will come, as, as Peter goes on uh, to tell the nation. We're not going to take time to look at these last verses. We've run out of, of time this morning. But, but Peter's point is very simple, really. He, he says that, that if you as a nation change your mind about this terrible crime, the, the crime that you... Uh, that you have perpetrated against our Lord, you put to death the Lord of glory if you repent and change your mind, then, then you'll be forgiven, your sins will be forgiven, and you'll be refreshed and relieved, 
and the great age of restoration will come that the prophets talked about, beginning with Abraham and Samuel and on to the end they prophesied that when Messiah came, he would set everything right. The lamb would lie down with the, uh, with the lion and, and this topsy-turvy, humpty-dumpty, chaotic, uh, broken-up world will be, will be set right and the Lord will come back to rule. And he said, he, all of this is so you can turn from your wicked ways and be blessed. And that's really what God wants more than anything else, to bless us. He cannot bless us if we cling to our sin. Uh, we, we don't have that sense of blessing. Blessing simply means power, potency, richness, wholeness, fulfillment in life, satisfaction. We can't have it if we're defending and justifying sin. We need to repent and return, and God will wipe away our sin and refresh us and bless us. That's the kind of Lord we have. He's, he's infinitely forgiving and loving. He's, he's the God of the universe. He's the sovereign of the world. He's not someone to be uh, taken lightly. Sin is not something to be minimized. But God himself died for our sin. And therefore we can find forgiveness in him. When we first come to him and on and on through our Christian life, there's always forgiveness. He takes us just like we are. I have a, a dear friend back in California. Some of you know him, Roy Thompson. Kind of grew up together. Uh, he went to Rice University. And I knew of Roy long before we got to know each other. He was a, an alternate in, the, I think it was the 1956 Olympics. He was a 400-meter hurdler. And he was a very cocky, crusty guy. Uh, we didn't really get acquainted until after he became a, a Christian. And I, I saw life over the years uh, just do terrible things to Roy. He went through the most brutal set of experiences that I've ever seen anyone go through. His, um, his, his wife walked off and left him and took the children. His oldest boy was riding a bicycle and was struck by a car and his spine was crushed and he became a paraplegic and it was just one thing after another. And uh, Roy was... Uh, going to Berkeley, working on a doctorate in, in Eastern philosophy back in the 70s. And we used to get together for lunch just to pray for each other and encourage each other along. And Oh, he just missed his kids so much. Judy had, had taken the children away, and, and he hardly ever got to see them. And, and he, he, he struggled and struggled with that, with that thing, but it, but it had tenderized Roy. He was just such a gracious and loving man. Still had a lot of the crustiness, but inside the Lord had, had made him so uh, gentle and gracious. We were walking down uh, Telegraph Avenue one day, just off the Berkeley campus, and there was a woman right in front of us, a counterculture lady, had a long gingham dress on, and she had a little, little boy, about three years old. She was holding him by the hand and jerking him along. And for about every uh, step that she took, this little boy would have to take about three or four steps, and he kept stumbling and, and losing his balance, and she'd jerk him on, and then she'd turn around and swear at him, and and jerk him a little, little further, and Roy and I were following right along behind. And finally, we got to the street corner, and the little boy was so tired and so frustrated, he just sat down in the gutter, put his feet down in the gutter, and sat on the curb. He just wouldn't move. And she jerked at him, and he just wasn't going to get up. And so she got down on his face, and she swore at him. She called him a, a list of names, some of which I'd never even heard before, and stalked off across the street and left the little boy sitting there. And he stuck his little grammy hands up into his eyes and started to cry and, and uh, Roy just sat right down next to the little boy. He just 
moved right in, right in the gutter and pulled him up against him and set him in his lap and hugged him. The little boy just responded like crazy. I don't think he'd ever been, uh, had, had affection shown to him like that. And Roy just held him. And pretty soon the woman realized the little boy wasn't with her anymore, and so she turned around and came back. And she started to swear at, at Roy. And he was holding the little boy, and she, she just got right down his face and called him every name in the book. And I'll never forget this. Roy stood up with the little boy, and he said, Lady, if you don't want him, I'll take him. And I've never forgotten that. Of all of the illustrations of the grace of God, that's the one that, that stands out in my mind. That's the kind of Lord we have. You may not want yourself. You may not even like yourself. And maybe none else at this point in your life wants you, but God does. He loves you. He's forgiven you. He's seeking you. As Samuel Gandy wrote, Well, may the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth not. Let's stand together, shall we? Father, we thank you that, according to your word, our consciences have been cleansed so we can serve. All of us struggle with, with an evil conscience from time to time. Teach us, Lord, to take seriously your word and live according to the standard. Hew to it. Believe it. Respond when when we uh, have acted contrary and feel real guilt. And Lord, increasingly teach us that we are forgiven, totally forgiven, and that you want us, you love us. We're accepted in the beloved. Help us, Lord, to use this new freedom of conscience not to indulge ourselves but to serve others. Help us to be bold in our proclamation of truth to the world around us, as well as loving toward those on the outside and help us to care for those around us who likewise struggle with feelings of guilt and unacceptance. Help us, Lord, to show by our life and by our words the freedom that we enjoy in your love. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.